my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we are joined by Julia Brownlee, who is a nurse practitioner in the Emergency and Trauma Centre here at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And she's going to really talk with something really interesting today on how to manage awkward conversations related to our female patients. Welcome. Hello, how are you going? Great. I'm hoping to learn a bit here. <laughs> yeah, you're setting the scene. I, I like to think I'm somewhat enlightened, but definitely buckling down for the trip here. You be- believe you're woke in this in this area? Yeah. So before we get into the deep and dark realms of um, the topic at hand today, mm-hmm. can we get to know a little bit about your backstory? How'd you end up where you are now? Um, well, I was fortunate I've already had a little speak of this, but um, so from my journey as a nurse, um, I came from the country and went to boarding school and my journey ended me up at college. Well, I wanted to go to college and didn't know what to do. And my family, my mum was a nurse and my sister was doing nursing. So I kind of fell into nursing that way. Um, I nursed um, at QUT and then um, Royal Brisbane was where my stamping ground was from that point of view. And then I headed off on a new grad year down to Melbourne and worked down in Melbourne for about three years. We're really fortunate to work at the Royal Melbourne, worked in um, medicine, uh, surgical wards, head and neck trauma, and then ended up in emergency. And then Emergency is where I've stayed and I've been managed to travel around the world to different emergency places. Um, I've been to um, New Zealand, Edinburgh, London um, and then found myself back in Brisbane again and so ended back up at the Royal Brisbane Emergency Department. Boomerang. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so from there, your path to into nurse practitioner, what, what was the draw? So from going, you're, you're, for want of a better term, a grunt on yep. the floor – what 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 was the draw? What was the path into nursing? Well, the reason I went to emergency is I um I fell into nursing and didn't necessarily think it was something that I was always going to do, but I ended up being quite good at it and felt that um we have a real place in the health system in terms of caring for patients. Um, we complement our other colleagues, and so I was on the ward and loved the ward, but got really frustrated that um my scope and limitation was quite um closed up there in that setting uh, and felt that that's why I was drawn to emergency with the autonomy. And then when I was in emergency, um, you know, we always know the demands that are on all health settings, but emergencies were in the time where there are lots of long waits from that perspective. And nurse practitioners were still quite a new thing in Australia, but I really felt that I had the ability, the knowledge and um, nursing has an ability to fill that gap in emergency and so I just decided to push my way down a pathway to try and make a nurse practitioner position down here. And you're particularly interested aren't you in female health? Yeah so 
you know, nurse practitioners emergency traditionally have sort of fallen in our minor injuries fast track just because that's where uh, advanced practice nurses used to work and that's obviously where I worked as well. But it's also looking at where there's deficits in the way that we manage in traditional models of care and being the biggest women's um, hospital in Queensland, um, there was a big deficit in our emergency department. It was a time where the two, there used to be the women's hospital and there used to be the adults hospital and they combined. And so this big population of um, women's health patients came to the general emergency department. It was really different. So there was a gap in terms of our knowledge as emergency clinicians and they're a vulnerable group. And so um, it was something that I saw that could be filled within a nursing um, model. Mm. So let's get into it. So your number one point is that there's this huge group of topics really that clinicians seem to struggle to have with women and before we came on air you know I was just reflecting that you know everyone in the population seems to be able to say penis and testicles but people still really struggle to say the word vagina like it's it's even about our, our genitals and our female parts isn't it so what are the other huge range of topics that you see um, that clinicians struggle to have with with women I think, you know, I think women's health is something that very topical at the moment, obviously coming from an emergency background and a lot of the women's health stuff doesn't necessarily seem that it fits into that big trauma kind of thing. You know, I'm sure we've got clinicians and nurses out there that work in that women's health gynae area and um, feel very comfortable in this situation. But I think we're talking to our new grad nurses and they're sitting in situations where it just seems a bit uncomfortable when you're talking about periods and um, pelvic pain and then we can come down to things like sexual assault and domestic violence, those things that sometimes affect more our women population and that people feel a little bit more uncomfortable about talking about or have an impression of that it may not actually be as urgent care that is necessary and that's more about society as well, seeing that a lot of women's business is stuff that women should just get on and do with. Mm. It's, it is funny that, you know, women are 50% of the population and yet things like periods or pregnancy loss um, or, as you said, you know, like t- terminations, infertility, pelvic pain, it's still sort of weirdly taboo. Yeah. I think it's things that um, make people sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable. I think society hasn't necessarily opened up to those things. I think um, in society there's a lot more change coming around. Early pregnancy loss and miscarriage is very much on the front line, which it should be. People should feel comfortable and open to talk about these kind of things. So you're mentioning, you know, that people still continue to feel uncomfortable in this space and, and I can see that. But I grew up with three brothers. I would never have said anything about having my period, yeah. like ever in a million years. Yeah. But I notice I have boys and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll come down and get the hot wheat bag because their girlfriend's got period pain. So I thought surely, you know, in 2023 things have changed. But in the emergency space, is it still very much that's a gynae issue and not something for emergency departments? Yeah, I think that um, – I think the thing with women's health is there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of things around, um, especially when you're talking about pelvic pain and – menstrual cycles and those kind of things, they're not something that you necessarily can fix with some medicine or fix with surgery and those type of stuff. And it's complex and it's often related more than just necessarily what's going on in that here and now. There's other complexities around it that make people feel a bit more uncomfortable and it's a bit harder to fix. And sometimes when things are hard to fix, we like to avoid it a little bit if that makes sense. 
And I think there is a stigma sometimes that think that it's a primary care issue and that it's something that should be managed in the primary care and not acknowledging what that person's going through, why, why they've come to an emergency department, which people don't come to an emergency department unless they've got a real fear at that time that they need something to be addressed. So let's move on to your number two point, yep. which is that there appears to be an, an unconscious bias and um, a kind of loss about what's a personal lived experience. What do you mean by that? Um, so I think unconscious bias or your personal lived experience, we can sometimes as humans, um, when we are faced with a situation or someone's story, can take our own story and pass that on to the patient. So I think it's really important that we just check that when we um, see patients, when we see something that might be a bit confronting and when someone discloses something to you such as domestic violence um, and you're caring for them and then we come to the point where we decide to talk about what their next step is in terms of their journey about safety planning and those kind of things in terms of if they're choosing at this time that they still need to go back to that situation. Some people can not be okay with that and can have issues with that. And so I think it's just trying to process that with yourself and being okay and just making sure that we're conscious of what we, what our story is and that we don't reflect that on our patients. That, that's tricky though, isn't it? Because it, by definition, it's unconscious. Yep. These things are accumulated from our beliefs, values from when we're kids right through our life and we find things to match the patterns that we already kind of ascribe to. Yep. And emergency practice is largely pattern recognition. Yep. So we're, we wouldn't survive and function without some, I, I guess, schemas for operating on a, yep. almost on autopilot. Yep. So a lot of the time it's only going to be in reflection and like in retrospect that we look at these interactions and go, could I have done that better? What could I have done? And also, I guess, looking at opportunities to watch and observe someone else have those conversations yep. and, and look at how that, how that might be d- done yep. differently? I, I think so. These yep. difficult things are not easy. That's why we say they're difficult conversations. And I just try and teach the nurses that I work with or even our medical colleagues is that, you know, to just I guess people always tell me that I'm the Pollyanna in the room, that I try not to see the bad in someone but always see the good in terms of, you know, if you've got someone presenting for multiple reasons or things from lots of different reasons is that you always just think that people wouldn't engage with this if there's not something they need from us and just trying to find that reason is what actually is what we're supposed to be doing in that situation. But there are still also some real stereotypes that um, persist, I think, for women. Um, This whole thing that women are more hysterical, less able to cope. I mean, anyone who's pushed out a baby knows that not to be true. But like what is it in medicine do you think that makes those stereotypes kind of persist? Well, I think it's the kind of things, again, coming back to the kind of conditions that people present with. So pelvic pain, um, the big thing at the moment, endometriosis, a lot of those type of stuff are things you can't see. We know it in terms of a condition is it actually can't be seen on ultrasound. It's really hard to diagnose and there's significant amount of research that's going into this at the moment and people present with pain. And I think traditionally as health clinicians we want to fix things and pain is very hard to fix. And so if we don't think someone looks like they're in pain or they've got something that should be causing pain, then unfortunately we can sometimes fall into this um, conundrum that they're seeking because they've got pain, all those kind of stuff. And pelvic pain in women is very complex and it's complex in men as well. And this is not to say that men don't suffer from pelvic pain from those kind of things, but um, it's harder and that's probably the kind of things that we see as people present with lots of different pelvic pain, wanting to have an answer of, 
often as society in health we think that there's something that can be fixed, something can be taken out and these things are a little bit more complex from that perspective. Yeah. The number three point is the importance of acknowledging and validating what is happening. And I guess this comes back to, you know, if someone's presenting with this horrific pelvic pain, you do an ultrasound, you can't see anything. Um, about just ensuring that you're not like, well, there's nothing there, so you must be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head on how we can do things to harm our patients just by saying things probably the wrong way. Um, you know, we see one thing from a health perspective, there's nothing there that we need to address in terms of surgery or things from that. And it's using our words, but acknowledging that doesn't mean they have pain. Um, the same as when you come to, you know, acknowledging somebody's loss. So mm. somebody may have had a very early pregnancy loss. And again, using that conscious bias, going back to that and saying, well, you know, it was only four weeks. Some people might see that as being very different, but that could be the greatest loss that that person's had at that moment. Acknowledging that, hearing them, giving them space to understand that and yeah, just comforting them at the bedside really is what it's all about. There's just been um, a lot of things in Australia and the media around miscarriage and how poorly women are treated in emergency departments and throughout. I'm happy to share that I've had a miscarriage and not had a great experience in an emergency department where I was told, think of it of just like having a period, uh, really unhelpful. Um, so like given that we're going to try and validate people, you know, what, what sort of words, you know, because sometimes... Um, often actually staff will come to me and say, I don't, I don't know what to say. Yeah. I, I think that's the biggest thing. We don't know what to say and sometimes you don't have to say anything. I think the thing for us as nurses is that we have connection with our patients and just being there, saying sorry is okay and saying, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this has happened um, and just letting them have their space and be there and present is a really important thing. Sometimes saying things like you said, can get more in trouble. You know, mm. if you don't know what to say, sometimes don't say anything. Mm. And that's why my role really existed in terms of why, from a women's health perspective, why I'm there is because we're such a big emergency department. We do see a lot of um, early women's loss, but early pregnancy loss less than 14 weeks. And you could acknowledge and see that, you know, we don't do well in this environment. It's not the best environment, but that's where patients come. And so part of my job is not only seeing the patients here, but helping to educate and support the emergency team about better ways that we can help manage our patients. And it doesn't have to be something outstanding. Like I think back to my own miscarriage, it was the anaesthetist who was the only person who was kind to me. And he actually said, I can't, I'm really sorry. I can't do anything about the fact that you've just lost your baby, but I can keep you really safe and I can help the pain go away. You know, that two minutes with me that I still remember 20 years later. So I, I, I totally think you're right. You don't have to have some magic words, but, um, you know, I like that saying that says, you know, people often won't remember what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. I think there's the converse that can happen as well is that well-intentioned sort of attempts to reassure through kind of minimization of what's happened that can be an attempt and with good intention to try and reassure yeah. to cha to make someone feel better but it can it is just totally misses the mark mm. um i recall back to when my wife had to was uh, having critical menstrual bleeding every menstrual cycle and ended up getting to the point where she needed to have a uterine ablation. Um, that was the best option. And it was presented to her as the, the description of it. Oh, I was, I just shove something up there and barbecue the inside of your uterus and you'll be sweet. That was the pr presentation of it. Then it, then she's done the consent and it is for a sterilization procedure. This is 
someone who's in their early 30s, we made that decision but still somewhat uncomfortably that we weren't going to have more kids. Mm. But this is someone's whole fertility being taken away from them. And and again, there's no doubt that this um, gynae surgeon's intention was to kind of make it a bit lighter. But who are you doing that for? I think that's the big thing is going, if I'm making it lighter, is it because I want to be more comfortable here Mm. or is it actually going to help? this person right now and most of the time I think it's just trying to like modify the emotional tone to get to where we as clinicians are more comfortable. I think that's right like I think like I said health wants to fix and that's part of what we drive to is to help people and care people but there's things in health that we can't always fix or there's things that are going to be difficult and they're not a quick fix and you know you're talking about that's a big presentation we see in the emergency department people coming in with heavy menstrual bleeding and a lot of that notation is it's just your period it's just happening but when you sit with them and talk with them it's completely life-changing their quality of life is atrocious and they're trying and they're doing every step and that we don't have an answer sometimes just sitting there and acknowledging and saying I'm sorry I'm Mm. sorry we can't fix this and it's rubbish and it's terrible but these are the things we're going to try and help together can be a helpful moment at that point in time you know from emergency perspective we've got an unlimited amount of ability we can do we have to connect them to the gynae or connect them back to primary care but at that moment in time we can acknowledge and help them so that we can get them in the right process and and as a male working in a female dominated job in nursing but also then seeing what's still largely a, a male dominated specialty working alongside our medical colleagues I see this all the time and also my wife's experience as an academic working in largely a white male-dominated area is women are getting minimised all of the time. This isn't just in health. Like So there's there's getting minimised in relationships potentially, minimised in their work despite their expertise, um, minimised in social settings. So this this isn't coming unique to to healthcare. So. I think one of the one of the topics you mentioned, the pain topic, I suppose, yep. and the difference between saying there's nothing wrong, we're, we've we've done all this, and there's nothing wrong with you. To comparing that to say a language around something like we've done a scan, we can't see a physical reason for why you're having this pain, yep. but it doesn't mean you're not having the pain, and yep. we're going to keep supporting, trying to support you the best we can. Is a totally different situation. Absolutely. And, you know, I validate every time, you know, we see a lot of pelvic pain and I have patients that come in that have been suffering it from years and I'll see them and may not do one investigation, but just sitting with them and explaining them about all the different anatomy that can cause the pelvic pain, the memory of pain, you know, we've had Mel Proper talked about the memory of pain, but, you know, just our structures of muscles like pelvic um, floors, cramping and all those kind of things that they may have never had the time to someone to explain that to them can just be really helpful in that moment. So, yeah, yeah it's important that... You know, if you don't feel comfortable having those conversations, um, finding the right people too, but you don't underestimate as a nurse sitting and taking time to listen to what the patient's um, experiencing because sometimes they ne- haven't got anyone that can, they can actually just talk to and let their experiences out. And I always say sometimes less is more. Yep. You know, like if you take – because people can say, oh, look, I work in a busy ward. I haven't got time to listen to someone's sob story about a period pain. You know – Whereas I think sometimes if you take five minutes, three minutes to sit down and say, wow, this, you know, I can see from your file this is a really chronic problem. Yep. You know, like 
how's it going? Do you feel like you've got a healthcare provider who's listening? You know, then that person may actually discharge or move on much Absolutely. quicker than the person who's like, I still haven't been heard, so I'm not going. Absolutely. I want to see someone else. And I want to escalate. I want to make a complaint. What I think we've lost a little bit in our nursing is that's the difference for us is that we have so much contact with our patients. Out of all of our colleagues, we're there 24 hours a day. We're at the bedside. We need to have that time. And when people talk about ratios and all those political things, it's actually so we can have the time to be a nurse. Mm. And a nurse's connection, compassion, talking, listening, finding that information that they've never been able to find out through the history of our medical colleagues when they're talking to them in that moment. But you sitting there, you can find something that actually, oh, what are your periods like that you're you know, bleeding every single day for six weeks, well, mm. that's not acceptable and that's not normal and trying to link in and helping them that way. We underestimate our nurses can get that information from our patients. Not just social workers. Not just social workers, although you do a great job. You'll keep Jessie's bear. That leads us beautifully to your fourth point, which is the importance of compassion and that everybody has a story. Yeah. So that, I mean, it says it in one line. I don't know if I can explain it much more, but I think that's the big thing is everyone has their own story and it's different to your story um, and we should be kind. People don't engage in health because they just want to be here. They're here for reasons and I think that we should, we've come into health to be compassionate, kind, help people and I think we need to remember that. And I know there's situations when people can be hysterical, as you said, or angry and that's not right to be happening in your workplace. You should feel safe. But we just need to really unpack why people are like that because the, most people aren't bad people. They're upset or in pain for a reason and we need to find that out and we just need to be kind to that bedside. And look, you know, I would really encourage people to refer back to our previous podcast on domestic violence. Yes. And we're actually just about to also issue a podcast um, on people with personality disorders, which really digs deep and helps explain some of those behaviours that we see. But, you know, people, some of the people we see have literally, since the day they were born, had tragedy, yeah. hardship, yeah. poverty, um, you know, that they push everyone else away yeah. because they've had years of being in care and being yeah. abused and being abandoned. Um, and, you know, yes, of course, at times we're allowed to feel frustrated or annoyed about things that happen at work. We're human beings. Yeah. But some of our patients' stories are heartbreaking beyond belief. And I just feel blessed every time I work in the emergency department because people come into a crazy environment where they don't know you and we stand at their bedside and expect them to tell us everything, the most intimate details about them. And if we can't be there and be kind and listen to their story that they've given it, it's not helpful because next time they won't come. So when you talk about domestic violence and all those experiences, to think what they've actually had from, like you said, when they're new or born and where they're and having a bad day, really sometimes obviously our colleagues can be sitting in the same situation so we should be kind to our colleagues as well. But really think about, you know, what was our, what was our day like today, what was really that struggle for us today and really think and put it down to them and just try, my biggest is just try and be kind, kind to the bedside. And look, I always say that, you know, I've had some pretty horrendous days at work, but I have never, ever asked more of myself than I've asked of those patients and families before us. You know, we, we choose to come here. We get paid for it. Um, our patients do not have that same opportunity. Right. And I think we underestimate what 
what we can do for a person. You know, there's a nice saying out there that one kind word can change a person's life. And that's, you know, you might say one nice thing in that moment or do one thing that was pushing against how you were feeling, but that could have the biggest impact on that person's life because they may have never had anyone give them kindness. And that's the truth, unfortunately, of society. And, you know, when we're speaking particularly about women and vulnerable women and women of colour and women with disabilities and women who uh, Australia is not their first home, they've come from war-torn countries, violence, different cultures, you know, just even being able to show on your face or with your body language, if language is, you know, English is not able to be swapped between you, um, we may not see the benefits of that in the here and now, but you don't know what could be the unintended consequences, good or bad, by your interactions with a patient. And you always want to be able to finish your shift and think, I, you know, I gave that as much as I possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, um, health, we are a place that needs to be a place of safety. So I think that we always have to just make sure that no matter what we interactions we have, we make people feel that they want to come back, that if it's um, if they're in crisis, if they choose to go home that night um, back to the person who is hurting them, that they know that if they change their mind tomorrow, they can walk into the emergency department or the hospital and someone will be there to greet them. We definitely don't want to be part of that abuse for that, no. that woman, do we? No. So I'm really conscious of trying to make some tools out of out of this and i know it's reductionist but and we're having a great conversation what are some ways we can get into this sort of compassionate conversation space with someone so let's, let's actually use me as an example me 15 years ago new grad sort of 25 year old male um coming in for an interaction with a woman who's presented with um early pregnancy loss um how do I get into that conversation? How do I build that safety with that that rapport, even a segue into that? Well, I think is trying to not um, – I think the big thing is that some people when there's an, something in there they feel uncomfortable, they try and avoid it and try not to address it. And that can be the worst thing in the room, you know, when you're coming in and someone's obviously being pregnant and just being told that they've lost their pregnancy. To ignore it from that perspective would probably be the worst thing. Trying to get a tool – I think it's hard. It's not like, you know, if someone's hypertensive, we give them fluids or if someone's tachycardic or got pain, we give them analgesia. It's taking it's, – it's steps of learning, but it's getting your resources that are around you because um, more experienced nurses around there might not be an expert in the actual clinical reason, but they'll be an expert in how to communicate to people. And that's the biggest tool that nurses need to learn is how to feel comfortable, how to get the trust of your patients, how to feel comfortable just to sit there in that silent moment. That's probably the hardest thing, I think. We want to be able to talk or talk over people and stuff, but sometimes just sitting there and listening to the patients or giving them the space and, and their cues from what they want from you is sometimes what you're looking for. So I guess in terms of – it's the sorcery of making time stop in an emergency department to a degree, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always easy. I'm very fortunate and my role as an NP, I've got a little bit more time, but I see my nursing colleagues, they're going between one and two patients and some not sometimes not having it. But sometimes just communicating that right now I can't have that conversation but I will get back to you or – the um, connection in society is missing. So it, the touch of a hand or saying I'll come back, I can see you're upset, I definitely will be back in a second, showing them that they mean something for us and we will be back is part of that process in that crazy world. So it was a male anaesthetist who was very 
kind to me when I had my miscarriage. But I, if I, if I could be so bold as the non-nurse in the world, in the room to make some suggestions. So first of all, just to go in and say I'm terribly sorry, and just pause. The second thing you might say, you know, I'm really conscious that I'm a male nurse and you've just lost your baby. Would you prefer to have a woman? That can be very powerful. Often then women go, okay, this person sees me and sees the situation and is often then comfortable to say stay. Um, But if they said to swap it out, not to take that personally. And the third thing is to say, sorry, again, you know, like, I'm really sorry that you've lost your baby. Um, What did this pregnancy mean to you? Because there are some people who don't want to be pregnant or there are some people who at this point in time this pregnancy was going to be very disruptive to their life or very difficult and can suffer from what's called um, ambiguous or disenfranchised grief where they're actually a bit relieved and don't feel that they can say that out loud. So a nurse can provide, you know, all of those things. And when we ask compassionate questions and people can respond it leads us to know what to say next so if the person says I'm 46 years old and I've just done you know 14 years of IVF IVF. and this was my last embryo that leads us where to next because this is a complete loss then of motherhood forever potentially that's devastating as compared to someone who is like I was ambivalent about this pregnancy. I've broken up with my partner. You know, I'm, I hate to say this, but this is a relief. That then leads you what to say next as yeah. well. And that's something, you know, from a young point, if someone's coming with pregnant is one of the things I try and teach all the colleagues is establish at the start if it was planned and if it was a pregnancy they want to continue. Because like you said, you're going to go through a different um, conversation if someone says, well, tomorrow I was booked have a termination yeah. versus someone who says exactly it's IVF and I've been trying and, and my last embryo from that point of view. On that point, I think the big thing is is that, you know, people have um, decisions and make decisions such as things like termination, which, um, you know, that conscious bias, people bring that in again. But just because it's the right decision for that person sometimes isn't always an easy decision. I think that's really important as well that when we travel, look after these patients that come with those decisions. Sometimes decisions aren't always easy. They're just right at that time. Yeah, exactly. All right, so your fifth point is, I guess, listen, listen, <laughs> listen and hold space for whatever it is a woman may be bringing in to health in whatever domain, outpatients, emergency d- department, etc. Yeah, I think that's it. It's just listening and holding space, letting them be heard. I think that's the big thing. Sometimes in health, be it if we're busy, we've got things on, we need to get through the information to explain it to them. Sometimes we talk at them and over um, people, any type of patient, but women especially, um, and that we should just listen and hold space to what they've come for. What really is their biggest concern? What is their biggest fear of coming into this situation? Be it, you know, that what you're talking about in terms of your wife situations, uh, you know, that's a big thing for a woman to be told, even though didn't have any intention to have children anymore, to be told that you can't have children anymore. So just giving that ability, that pause that you say in whatever situation is, that um, they have ability to be heard for what their concerns are. Yeah. And listening, I, if I could go back and say anything to my junior self early in my career, is stop saying stuff to prove that you know what you're talking about. Just shut up and listen. Yeah. You know, so listening has become so void in our society. You know, when we're talking to people, they're on their phones, they're distracted. It's like, 
how how do I get someone's attention? Yeah. So I think there's something very powerful that happens, particularly when someone's feeling very vulnerable, frightened, in pain, for someone who just stops, looks at them, you know, might touch their arm or the shoulder or get them a blanket and just listens for yep. a moment or two. Absolutely. Listens to their struggles that they're having with this condition that they've had for all the time and no one can give them the answer. Listen to them in their grief when they've lost their pa- their baby that um, they, you know, had already formulated a whole life with them and their partner. Um, listening to them when they've got pelvic pain and the medication that we're saying should help isn't helping. I think it's just important that we can, as health clinicians, listen and acknowledge that we don't have the answers to everything but that sometimes just talking it through with them and hearing that their story that we acknowledge what it is can be very helpful. Perfect. I'm going to have a go of summarising that. By all means, you two, jump in and uh, give me a hand. All right, so we're talking about, you know, awkward conversations that people struggle to have with female patients. So the first one was there's this, a series of topics that people in particular really struggle. And I was saying that I still find it interesting how many people in our community can't say the word vagina. Uh, we were laughing earlier that when I was little, I thought I had a Volvo. Apparently that's a car. It was but, very safe. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very safe Volvo. <laughs> so, so that's topics such as periods, I guess we didn't talk about, but sexually transmitted yep. diseases. It's things like pregnancy loss, termination, infertility, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, things that are taboo that people need to come into a health setting and feel comfortable that they can talk about it. Number two was we've all got this unconscious bias and we've got a personal lived experience and we need to be careful that we don't put our values, our beliefs, our life you know, decisions onto our patients. We need to be careful that we don't think women are hysterical or just can't cope with pain or, or a, you know, seeking medication, that, that we're really aware that our experience with life, our experience with periods or our experience with partnerships may not be everybody else's experience. Number three is the importance of acknowledge and validating what has happened. So this is particularly imperative perhaps if we do an investigation and there's no clear answer. You know, often with miscarriage, we never know what has happened, but this can be the same for, you know, cysts, for period pain, for endometriosis. We can't see anything, but saying, you know, I'm sorry, there's nothing, you know, that we can visibly see, but that doesn't mean we, we don't, we can see that your pain is very real. And uh, I remember reading in a book in grade nine, there's nothing worse to fear than fear itself. And so often not being able to find something on an ultrasound. Fear they uh, yeah. worry about. People are it? like, oh God, it must be something very bad. Um, the fourth thing is, you know, be compassionate. Everybody has a story that we may never know, that many of our patients um, have suffered and continue to suffer in lives that we cannot in our wildest dreams even begin to imagine. And that sometimes people who have had poor attachments as children uh, who have been in abusive relationships over duration of times, find it hard to receive or to interact with people who are being generous and kind to them. Uh, we don't need to take that personally and that certainly we don't want to be part of a system that is continuing to abuse women um, and that we want to keep those doors open so at any point those, those women need to come back to our health um, system, they feel safe to do so. 
And last but not least, it is really this beautiful gift of listening that we can give to women and being able to hold them in a space, no matter, you know, how awful or how taboo or how frightened or how unwell they are, that we're going to listen and to the greatest of our ability, respond clinically. Julia Brownlee, that was gold. Thank you so very much for joining us on Five Things. Thanks for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 